I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome back, fellow optimists. Sophia Tapia here, your host on the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics from the world's brightest minds. If you're new to the show, welcome. In each episode, you'll hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet we call home. So settle in, because we're about to dive into another radically optimistic conversation. Much of the fundamental research in computer science has been driven by the needs of those attempting to utilize computing for various applications, including healthcare. Today's guest, Shwetek Patel, will describe a collection of research projects that leverage mobile phone technology in new ways to enable the screening, self-management, and studying of diseases. By using mobile phones as healthcare devices, we can enable access and scale, helping advance health and clinical science through the convergence of sensing, machine learning, and human-computer interaction. So, let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Just wanted to share some thoughts around the, the area of how the mobile phone can actually impact healthcare. So, what I want to talk about today is, um, you know, how... How do we look at the mobile phone these days and how does the mobile phone play a role in healthcare? So most of my talk will be focused on the intersection computing and healthcare, but also uh, how AI and machine learning is playing a critical role to help enabling some of these applications in healthcare where you can take some of the sensors on the phone and take them to the next level in terms of the kind of utility they can have in the healthcare space. So that's where I'll spend most of my time. But before I do that, I just wanted to give everyone an overview of, of my research in general. So I, myself, as a computer scientist, but even as a computer scientist, I'm a very applied researcher in the sense that I typically use computer science and machine learning and sensors and those as tools to solve socially meaningful problems. So a lot of my earlier work when I, when I joined the faculty at the University of Washington and even when I was a graduate student was a lot around activity recognition, energy monitoring, sustainability. So I did a lot of work in how to use machine learning and AI to help people better understand their energy and water usage. So a lot of work in sustainability. I've been doing healthcare research from the start of uh, my PhD, where a lot of the work that I've done in machine learning and sensors have been applied for things like elder care, remote monitoring. So healthcare is just such a complicated uh, space that it takes many years to have impact in that space. So you have to kind of persevere through it. So I've been doing a lot of work in healthcare. Uh, as Giannis mentioned, um, so one of my areas of focus is also ubiquitous computing. 
So I've looked at different ways of how do we build new sensors that are truly ubiquitous. So sensors that can be deployed in an environment where you don't have to worry about retrieving them to replace their batteries or having to go connect it to a power source. So how do you build sensors that are low power, uh, wireless, that get, can give you this longe longevity, but also the breadth of deployment. So I looked at a number of different solutions around uh, low power wireless sensors. And also, if you think about um, computing these days, just like um, you know, what I'm going to be talking about on the mobile phone for healthcare, you know, the phone is, is one of the most ubiquitous computing platforms out there. And so with a small device like the phone, interacting with it gets very difficult compared to a traditional keyboard or mouse. So my group and I have also looked at a number of different emerging interaction techniques to be able to interact with a device that is you know, something, that's size, something of that size and looking at different input modalities, looking at gesture interaction, voice interaction. So looking at how do we expand the vocabulary of interacting with a computing uh, platform. So this is, you know, my, my research has been fairly broad, but, but a lot of the work that we've been doing is very applied and looking at you know, problem-driven research where we look at particular areas of emphasis and then uh, and use computing as tools to solve those. But today what I really want to focus on is something that I've been doing for over a decade now, which is looking at how do we build computing technologies to address um, the need for personal health monitoring. And what I, what I mean by personal health monitoring is that if you think about the healthcare industry right now or healthcare technologies, a lot of it is really based around general population information. And what that means is, what I mean by that is, you know, you have statistics on, you know, the trend of something happening, either maybe there's a, you know, a regional statistics around the infection rate of influenza or maybe coronavirus. But then there's also this personal component to it where some people might be more at risk. Some people have um, certain risk factors that others might not have. Some people might be exposed to some things that others might not have. So the, the ability to monitor, monitor physiolog physiologically your personal well-being is really important in the, in, the, in the healthcare space, but that's very tough. Um, we don't have a mobile hospital with us all everywhere or a clinic with us. You know, right now the model is you go to a clinic or a hospital, but what would it mean if you had the technology with you? And my personal hypothesis, and I think an emerging hypothesis is given that the larger, larger portion of the world, mobile starts, is starting to become more and more of a ubiquitous platform. How do we start to pull some of that into mobile phones? And so that's really the crux of this talk. A lot of people talk about, why is a computer scientist doing so much healthcare work? Uh, I often like to point out that, uh, you know, I've been honored to be the recipient of the ACM Prize in Computing. Um, the highest honor that ACM provides is the, uh, the Turing Award. And it's just interesting to point out that at one, a couple of points um, in the last maybe couple of years, Alan Turing's most cited paper was actually a biology and health paper. And this is something that a lot of people don't realize. Often they forget about, and you know, they all remember the computer science impact that he's had. But some, this paper on morphogenesis, which is basically this concept of, you know, how do identical cells um, differentiate into different things and physiologically stripes and legs and tails. And, and so he had a theoretical, theoretical underpinning on how that happened, uh, how that happens from a chemistry standpoint. And it turned out that that was a very fundamental basis in biology and bioscience and, and even in health. And so it's just interesting to point out that even the, the top prize that bears the name Turing, actually uh, one of the most cited papers is actually a health and biology paper. So, so just something to think about that, you know, computer science can have an impact anywhere. Computer science is such a powerful tool if harnessed very effectively and in the right ways can have a huge impact. And healthcare is an area that I encourage a lot of you uh, to really consider in computer science as a place to have impact. 
The thing about healthcare that's really fascinating is that if you look at the paradigm shifts, they've all been enabled by very interesting phenomenon in society. And some of the things that you look, you can see in healthcare were actually initiated because of major pandemics. When you have a pandemic, you have the entire community galvanizing around what's going on there to try to see what you can do to address those issues. Now, it's unfortunate that it often takes a pandemic to do this, but pandemics have actually trailblazed a lot of innovative work in healthcare. If you look at vaccines, you know, when you think about polio or vaccinate vaccines that were being developed over the course of time where, you know, innovation around vaccine development has been even more recently spurred by innovations in computing. The coronavirus, if you look at, look at how the vaccine is being developed, very unprecedented ways that uh, these studies are being done and how computing is playing, playing a role. The treatment, think about the HIV pandemic where we went from this pandemic, now we're starting to have treatment where people can benefit from these very complicated treatments, but these treatments have been advanced because of, the, of some of the original pandemics that had hit many parts of the world and continue to hit, the, hit many parts of the world, unfortunately, but at least there are treatments that are starting to be developed there. Surgical robotics or manipulation, looking at how surgeries are now safer and you can do these in outpatient settings. You can do these in ways where it's not as invasive and a lot safer. Uh, imaging, medical imaging has been revolutionized because of, of AI and computer vision, being able to interpret, diagnose, and screen images that is typically human overread, but AI techniques can help identify things that maybe a human may miss or maybe assist an individual to be able to interpret or overread an image. And so these, those things have all been pushed by either major technological advances or paradigm shifts that have happened because of pandemics or major, major conditions that have been arising in society. Another one that I want, I'd like to point out is point of care diagnostics. It has been a major paradigm shift in, in healthcare as well. And what I mean by point of care diagnostics is that the notion that when you go to a clinic or a hospital, that at that moment, you can get a diagnosis. So instead of doing a, an exam and then ha maybe having a chest x-ray or a blood draw and then sending off to a lab, maybe a few days later, maybe a week later, you get a result back. The fact that there are machines at the time of clinical, at the time of the clinical encounter, you can actually get a diagnosis was a revolutionary. The fact that you can go into a clinic, you can get a mammogram or you can get an ultrasound or you can get the fetal heart rate to see the wellness of a baby. At the moment that somebody's getting that care, just changed how you would diagnose disease and what you could do from that point onward. So that is one major area of, of innovation in healthcare that's really caused a major paradigm shift. Right now, we're actually in the midst of a very unique paradigm shift, which is basically this whole other area of mobile devices and sensors and wearables with the intersection of AI and machine learning and signal processing, where pushing the boundaries on what current computing platforms can do with low-cost, ubiquitous sensors and machine learning and AI to basically push the boundaries on what you can do with healthcare outside the four walls of the hospital has been a, is, is another major paradigm shift we're in the middle of right now. The coronavirus has actually accelerated a lot of this work, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. And so this whole paradigm shift of using mobile as a way to compute, display, and transmit uh, sensor and physiological data changes the game in terms of healthcare, especially how you administer it outside of the four walls of the hospital or the clinic. And on top of that, you've got this whole plethora of technology that are being developed for on the wearable side. So if you think about heart rate monitors, pulse oximeters, looking at activity trackers, ECG, EKG, breathing monitors, uh, looking at gait analysis to uh, prevent falls or detect 
the onset of, uh, of, of a potential fall hazard. You, you're starting to see sensor technology starting to be embedded into, daily, into one's daily life. This is all fairly new right now, um, but it, it starts to really change the way that we think about healthcare. And so what, what does this really mean? Why, why bring mo healthcare to the mobile space? You know, one of the things that we're already seeing in the pandemic right now is that telemedicine usage is just expanding dramatically, uh, which has enabled remote care monitoring. The fact that you don't necessarily need to go to the clinic or in the hospital where you can do a lot of these uh, virtual care visits remotely has really changed the way that you administer care. You can, the, the timeliness, the convenience, and also the frequency at which you can interact with a professional. The other thing is that mobile devices, because they're with you and they're so personal, and mobile devices are things that, you know, if, if you forget the device at home, you will more than likely go get it to basically uh, use it for that day because you, a lot of people, you need that just for your daily activities in terms of being able to do your work, being able to keep up with the family, being able to just operate in that day. Uh, that's a device that people are, will likely have with them. And so you can use this as an opportunity to drive screening. So for the coronavirus, if there are new guidelines that come out or if there's things that you want to have somebody do where you might have a checklist or might want to do a triage, you can push these to the phones and the phone will be with them. They might not have a pulse oximeter or may not have other devices, but at least the phone could be a broker or at least a, a first source of information. It also pushes the boundary on how we just, uh, develop new diagnostics. We're not beholden to this, just the things you can do in the clinic. We can actually start to do things that are more longitudinal, looking at things over time, changes over time to be able to diagnose or treat uh, disease, and also improvement in treatment. Now we have more real-time feedback from the individual so that it's not just beholden to the maybe every one week or six months or every one year where one might see a medical professional. Here you have more continuous interaction or physiological access to one's information so that you can start to make a more real-time assessment in terms of changing or, or, or updating treatment. And I mentioned this before, continuous monitoring and continuous measurement is this notion that you have more physiological data from the individual to make a better judgment in terms of how treatment is going or the onset of disease before you have disease. So one of the things that is top of mind for a lot of health researchers is how do you get to a prediction of a diagnostic or predict disease before you're symptomatic or you're asymptomatic. So what would it mean if you could diagnose or screen for coronavirus before you're symptomatic? Because a lot of times when you're symptomatic, not symptomatic, you're still a spreader. You can still infect others. Influenza is the same. Um, before you're symptomatic, uh, uh, you're still can expose other people. You're still can, inf your infectivity capabilities are fairly high, even pre-symptom. Um, but also personally, by the time you're symptomatic for a lot of diseases, the treatments are much more complicated. So by looking at longitudinal continuous data, you have this possibility to be able to pattern match and say that, hey, there's something different going on here over this course of this year than normally in your body. Now let's start to get at some of these uh, tests that we can do before um, your symptomatic or before condition starts to worsen. And the mobile phone has played an important role in a lot of these, in, in the healthcare space in general. And a lot, of, a lot of these tools that we've seen out there have mainly been data collection apps. Or, you know, one of the canonical ones are, are food journaling for weight loss or just general nutrition, where you enter the information about what you've eaten, how, uh, how much you've exercised, and you have a food journal or a log. And a lot of these things are manually inputted. And there's also different technologies out there where you can use the phone as a journal. But one of the things that's happening is with the modern smartphone, or even the smartphone or just five years ago, or even the phone seven years ago, are very capable. And if you think about the 
mobile phone penetration worldwide, we're starting to get to uh, phone penetrations at an order of three, four billion phones in the world, even more than that, depending on how you lump a smartphone to a feature phone. But if you look at what's in a phone, you have a camera flash, you have a touch screen that's capacitive, you've got accelerometer, gyros, multiple microphones, multiple speakers, you know, some of the newer phones have IR projectors. But often we take these sensors for granted where, you know, we use it for telephony, maybe use it for gaming, maybe and often use it for photography. But these sensors are fairly capable, especially when you look at machine learning and AI and signal processing as a layer to start to interpret what you can get from these sensors, that these are things that are already with many people. And how do we leverage those sensors for healthcare has really been the, the, the crux of the work that that I've been doing and now the community has been doing. There's been a lot of work that has been developed um, beyond just my lab now that is looking at how do you use existing sensors on mobile phones for health monitoring. And what I mean by existing sensors is that yes, you can attach a device to a phone, but what I mean here is that how do you use the sensors that are already on the phone for doing health monitoring? This could be the speaker, the microphone, and or even some of the more emerging uh, sensors that you might see on their accelerometer gyros are starting to be, are pretty much on every phone. But now you start to see other kinds of sensors like NFC uh, or other kinds of radios on there. So how do you start to leverage those for physiological monitoring, really pushing the envelope with what you could do with these sensors? And the goal is that you don't have to be perfect. You have to just have enough of an insight to know what to do next. So you don't have to make these things perfectly accurate or as good as a clinical device that you might have in a hospital, but how do you have just enough confidence that this can give you information to triage an individual, so a precursor to what you might actually do as a diagnostic, so you know what path an individual can take. And so we've been working on a number of different technologies. I can't talk about all of them today, but I'll just give you a, a, a little bit of a taste of the kinds of things that we've done. We've done work in the pulmonary space, uh, looking at um, using the microphone for cough assessment, lung assessment, even blood screening, uh, looking at using the camera and flash on assessing how much hemoglobin is in the blood, bilirubin in the baby, uh, in, in, in newborns and babies, cardiovascular disease, so looking at SpO2 monitoring using the camera and flash, blood pressure monitoring using pulse transit time, using the sensors that are already on the phone, uh, technology around sleep, osteoporosis, um, and, I, and I welcome anybody to go to our uh, lab website at the University of Washington to, to, see, to take a look at any of these papers, but I'll give you kind of a, a, a little bit of a, an overview on a variety of these different technologies and how well they work and the impact that they can have on healthcare and also some of the impact that they're having on the current pandemic. So the first technology I want to talk to you about is something that we did as one of the first technologies that we had built for monitoring lung function. And this is very relevant right now. If you think about the coronavirus, which is a, a respiratory ailment that um, you have to monitor very closely, um, especially people that might be at risk, that might have asthma, a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It, monitoring your lungs are, are very important in that case. And, and measuring lung function uh, is typically done by uh, a technique called spirometry. So, you know, if you have a cardiovascular or heart disease, you might get an EKG or echocardiogram. In the lung space, you get a spirometry measurement. And spirometry is basically a measurement of how much air you can push out over a certain period of time to get assessment of how well are your lungs doing? Are there fluids in the lungs? Are the lungs not as efficient? Are there other things happening? And, and as the lung function drops, pulmonologists typically use this as a screener or diagnosis to basically take a step. You know, what do you do next? But the thing is that if you have asthma, you don't really know when you're going to have an asthma attack. Uh, you might 
kind of learn the pre-signals about what might be happening, but you might not have the spirometer with you. You might not have the device with you. Or in the case of coronavirus, if you want to monitor post-infection, how your lungs doing, well, there's not a technology out there to do that. Or if you're in a remote space uh, where you might have telemedicine, how do I do a lung function if I can't go to the clinic? So what we developed was a technology that could use the phone. Um, but before I go into that, the kind of thing that you want to just keep in mind is the thing that pulmonologists care about is that you really care about volume and flow. So, it, and, and typically what they look at is this curve where, you know, you have restriction where you might have the scooping flow volume curve, or you might have restriction where it doesn't go up to the high level peak for your particular uh, age and, and weight. Um, and so pulmonologists need these curves. And a lot of these home spirometers don't even have that. They might have one of the metrics that might be relevant, but the pulmonologist needs to have all the metrics available. So, so some of the existing devices didn't quite do that. And so what we wanted to do was develop a phone-based tool that just used the microphone. So no additional hardware. Just think about the, the barrier. If you had to plug another device in, you might as well have a dedicated device in a lot of those cases. Uh, was to how do we use the microphone as a signal or as a sensor to be able to assess how much air that one is blowing out in the same way that you would do in a clinical spirometer, but do it with a mobile phone. And so that's what we developed, an app that basically hold the phone in front of you, you blow out the face of the phone, there's a visualization that shows that are you blowing hard enough because this is very technique dependent because you've got to get all the air out. And then there's a visualization that shows, yep, you've got, there's still more air in the lungs, still more air in the lungs. And then when you're done, it gives you a flow volume curve. And you can either read this out to a clinician, you can send it to them, you can text message it to them. But the idea is you can do a phone-based spirometry maneuver. So how does this work? Um, so traditional spirometers use a flow sensor. So a flow sensor is just a turbine. It basically you have a little orifice, you have a sensor in it, which might be a little turbine. As you blow inside of it, the thing spins faster and faster. The faster it spins, the more it spins, the more air is going through and you just integrate that over time. So that's the example on the thing on the, lip, uh, on the left. There, there's some more advanced uh, flow sensors that don't have a turbine. They're called pneumatax, which is a much more of a, has less obstruction. The intake flow sensor for the in, internal combustion engine in a car uses a flow sensor. It's a little wire that heats up and as air moves across it, it cools down and that tells you how much flow goes through it. So there's lots of different ways to do flow sensing. But in our case, we only have a microphone and a microphone is technically an uncalibrated pressure sensor. And so, so how do we turn this uncalibrated pressure sensor that's basically designed to just pick up sound waves into a flow meter? And that's what we basically started to work on. And it turned out, we actually stumbled across a technique that we could use that was being used in the um, speech recognition community for years, where in the speech recognition community, the vocal track resonances that are happening. So if you wanna uh, analyze my speech or transcribe my speech or my sound, the, the vocal track resonances that come through were actually causing issues and noise problems with the actual speech recognition algorithms themselves. And so there was a long history of developing filters that would cancel out the resonance. But if you look at the physiology, when you're blowing air out, the obstructions are happening in the pulmonary system. So what would happen is when you have some type of obstruction, the vocal tract resonances would actually change. So in fact, the human body can be the sensor. You don't need an external sensor. The resonances were actually very much related to the pulmonary system itself. So we found that, so in a lot of the research and literature, we took a problem that was a uh, issue for speech recognition, turned the problem on its head and said, hey, that thing that was causing problems for speech recognition, 
we can actually use that for health sensing because that's actually telling you a lot about the physiology. So why don't we take it from that perspective? So that's how we actually developed some of these algorithms. So we, we created this vocal track model and we actually went back to the original literature, but really it's this physical model that you can create from the glottis, the vocal track and the mouth when air is coming out of it. This is work that computer science communities, the speech recognition community, uh, even the, the, the medical communities have these models around how air flows and how the mouth creates this uh, resonance that creates sound. And so what we did was we actually modeled the vocal track. We actually created a 3D model of how air flows through if you had a restriction. So let's say you have you know, a musical instrument and as you change the properties of that musical instrument in terms of adding or removing a mass within that track, it changes the sound. And that's essentially what we did. We tried to create a model where as the vocal tract resonances are changing, it turned out that in our clinical data collection, that that resonance changes is proportional to the actual flow coming out of it. You have to normalize it based on the height and weight of the individual because you've got to kind of get a sense of the size of the, of the pulmonary system. But that's what a model that we used was basically a statistical model that basically predicted that, but now we've actually moved beyond that and we're actually using deep learning models. And I'll talk about how we've been collecting the data on that in a second. But one of the things we did early on was that not everybody has a smartphone. How do we enable 5 billion phones or 4 billion phones? How many phones are out there in the world to be able to do this? So we actually developed the technology in two ways. One was using an app on a phone where you get the best audio data possible. And then a phone, any ordinary phone in the world, so one of the things that we did was created a, a version where you could make a phone call to a toll-free number, and then you would do the maneuver the same way. In that case, we had to analyze the data that goes from the speaker all the way through the telephony network, through the GSM tower, through the transcontinental fiber line or the oceanic line, or maybe it's going through the uh, satellite connection, really looking at how that data gets mangled and gets to the endpoint. And it turns out from the mu law encoding and the way the encoders work, it actually preserved just enough of that sound that's created when you make that blowing maneuver that we could still reconstruct some of this. It's not as, ac as accurate as a phone app, but this would actually allow you to do it in such a way that you can call any toll-free number and you te it text messages you back the result. So you can use any ordinary phone in the world, literally turning any phone in the world into a pulmonary assessment tool. So we did a very large clinical study of about 10,000 patients around the world where we took a clinical glade, $10,000 clinical spirometer and the app to see how well does this work. And it turns out a lot of these measures, um, even if you use the phone app or even the local recording, which is just basically the telephone call, you have errors in the, you know, uh, about, you know, five to 10%. And to put that into context, uh, most of these FDA, the Food and Drug, Drug Administration uh, uh, clearance for a lot of these uh, spirometers is within 5 or 10%. So when you do a spirometry test and you do another one, you already have 5% variation from test to test. So if you think about this, even if you had a 10 or 15% error, if you're just thinking about you know, healthy lung function, moderate, or you see a change in that you're getting a downward trajectory, that already is good enough for triaging. So let alone that this is already very close to a clinical device. So then we're actually approaching clinical device accuracy numbers, but for a triage tool, you actually don't need to show anybody the numbers. You just have to say that, hey, if you're doing this test once a week or once a day, if you see you go down a threshold, if you, you know, if you're, if you have a downward trajectory, that's what would elicit a secondary step. 
But if things are looking normal, then you can keep just doing the test. But now we can start to triage people that are actually having a decline and start to push more, more of our resources to those individuals. So even as a screening tool, this would be really helpful. So this gives you a, a sense that these things can actually work fairly well when you compare them to a clinical um, device, but it's really enabled by the theoretical models from the physics model to the sensor innovation that was required and the machine learning work that was required there. So some similar work that we did uh, related to this was to study cough. So cough is an often a common symptom that people often talk about, but from a, from a healthcare standpoint, people often don't give it much thought because coughing is a symptom in a lot of things, right? A pulmonologist or medical professionals are always like, coughs, what do you do with a cough? Everybody's coughing. But one of the things that we've been looking at is like, hey, you know, you know, the human ear can't really differentiate a lot of things about a cough. You know, when somebody's coughing in the room, a lot of times we don't even notice that. Um, so if you ask somebody to self-report how often they cough, if they have a pulmonary disease, they grossly underestimate. Typically, somebody that coughs maybe 100 times an hour may say, oh, I only cough two or three times because you got to tune that out. But a machine learning algorithm or a microphone won't tune that out. There's things that uh, human ears may not pick up, whereas a machine learning algorithm could pick up. So our hypothesis was that, hey, human ears may miss some of these subtle characteristics, whereas in computer vision, an image, um, there's only so much you can do with image processing because of the resolution of the camera, what may or may not be in the scene, but the, the visual processing that one could do on an image is, is greatly sur uh, surpasses what you can do with a computer uh, vision algorithm. But in the human ears, there's a different situation here where, where there's these subtle characteristics that don't even get captured because you're just kind of canceling and tuning them out. So the idea here was that there might be some more entropy in cough than we think. Uh, and so let's study that. So we developed uh, these techniques that are actually starting to be used now with coronavirus, where cough is a major symptom of this, where we looked at, at first is let's use that same glottis model and start to create a cough model from it. Now, instead of doing spirometry, let's identify cough. You know, what is cough? A cough is this only 300 millisecond thing that happens where you have this, you inhale, and then you have this really large ex explosive uh, event that happens where you have this <coughs> cough event. And it happens about 200 to 300 milliseconds long. You have this burst period, and then you have this round off. And it turns out there's actually a pretty unique signature for a cough. So if you just wanted to identify a cough, you can actually do that fairly accurately compared to throat clearing, speech, background noise, car banging, uh, uh, backfiring sounds, car sounds, doors opening and closing. You can actually fairly accurately identify a cough. Uh, which could actually potentially be useful. Uh, in the medical space, there wasn't really technology that can actually quantify cough. So we had to develop that first before you could do anything deeper. And if you start to look closely at it, when somebody coughs, that could tell you a lot about the physiology. Is it a dry cough, wet cough? Potentially, one of the things that's happening in the uh, computer science community right now is could you diagnose a screen coronavirus from the cough? I think that's going to be very difficult because coronaviruses can be, you know, influenza cough or a tuberculosis, sorry, a uh, pneumonia cough might sound the same, but the fact that you have something happening might be a good signal. So could you identify a wet versus dry or precursor to potentially something that could be something like a coronavirus, like an upper respiratory infection? You could do, but the first is to identify if you can identify, find the cough accurately. So, so one of the things that we focused on early on was not just coughs for cough's sake was really looking at it for a particular condition, which was tuberculosis. So we worked very closely with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to see, could we use a cough algorithm to help identify and study tuberculosis, which is a highly infectious lung disease. In fact, a lot of things in TB parallel the coronavirus. It's infectious, 
coughing is a major symptom. We, we're still trying to figure out how it spreads. Is it community transmission? It probably is, but how, do you have a super spreader? Is it one individual spreading a lot or is everybody spreading? How do the part, particles stay? How long do they stay in the air? What kind of humidity temperature causes the particles to stay suspended? There's a lot of parallels there. So we actually looked at studying tuberculosis and cough as a way to say, how can we do maybe public health assessment? How do we know if there's a super spreader? How do we know if there's a lot of coughing? Could be an indicator for tuberculosis or even personal health monitoring. If I had a way to monitor my cough in the evenings or maybe throughout the day, am I doing better now at post-infection uh, of TB? So one of the things we had to do was collect data here. And so we worked with the Gates Foundation and uh, University of Cape Town to deploy some of our technologies in this cough box that they had developed, which is a little box that you go inside of, you close it up, um, and these are people that are infected with, uh, that already have tuberculosis, they go in there. This thing is obviously disinfected every time somebody goes in there, but there's an impactor in there that can capture the particles. So when the particles are analyzed, you know in fact that there's TB particles that were captured from the cough. There's a, obviously a microphone in there for our own assessment. There's a number of different devices in there, but you, you, you capture the cough, you capture the particle, and from the chest X-ray and the particles, you know for sure that they have TB or not. And that's how we were able to collect a lot of the data early on. And if you look at tuberculosis, the infection is hit by, you know, you've got your white blood cells attacking it. And then you've got these granulomas that form, which are basically these little holes that show up on a chest x-ray. And the idea here is that, hey, if I'm coughing with a healthy lung versus a TB lung, my cough has to sound different. Even though if I can't hear it differently, from an algorithmic standpoint or machine learning and AI standpoint, it has to look different because you're completely changing the airflow of how the origination happens, how the flow is coming out. It's just inherently from the physics, there has to be a change, but how do we identify the change? That's the hard part. So these are some of the things that we've been looking at now and some of the community has been looking at is in addition to identifying the cough, when you zoom into that waveform, there is a signature that you can start to look at where if it's wet or dry, and also, if you look at the last 50 milliseconds, that's when the voice comes through. So you can actually start to identify, it's, if it, is it one coffer or another coffer? So some of the work that we've done is identifying not only is it a cough, but clustering saying, hey, that cough that we just heard is different from this other cough. So you can start to do these privacy preserving techniques on device, where in an environment, you can start to see how, what the infectivity rate of an environment is. Um, without having to send any data to the cloud, you just locally process that and cluster how many different individuals might, be, might have been infected. Or you can have a personalized device, which is something for you to monitor your own rates. And so some of the algorithms that we've developed, especially around cough identification, are starting to get better and better over time. So if you think about the false positive rate, you don't want to have this technique say that people are coughing when they're not coughing. Uh, so you need to have this really high true positive rate, you've got to really know that somebody, when there's a cough, it's actually a cough. So you don't over predict some of these things. Um, and so some of these convolutional neural nets, these CNNs are actually starting to outperform some of our uh, traditional SVMs that we had worked on in the past, um, these four vector machines. And so if you start to look at, you know, sensitivity specificity, you can start to get to, you know, less than 10 or 5% or even 1% false positive rates with accuracies that are above 85%, which is well above self-report, well above self-report. And these are just using commodity microphones. So this gives you a sense of how, how some of the AI work has actually ex accelerated some of the, um, the capabilities of how you can do this kind of assessment. So some of the things that we're doing and some of the things that the community is now starting to come around with coronavirus is starting to look at post-infection. 
So now, you know, you've got so many people affected, but post-infection, how are we going to triage post-infection care? So after you've been infected, you still have to assess one's lung function, especially if somebody was at risk. So are you doing better or not? And how do we do that at a large scale? We just can't have everybody come back to the hospital because the clinics are overwhelmed with the diagnostic cases. How about the post post-infection cases? So some of the tools that we've been building is tools on the phone where you can have the phone that's night side, you can put it next to your bedside where in the evening, uh, that's a good time to start to monitor how often you're coughing or not because sometimes pulmonary exacerbations or something that might arise may happen at night. And so if you see a cough frequency is going up where often a co-sleeper yourself might not know well, how things are going or how you're breathing. So you can start to do this assessment to say, hey, you know, this, this is getting worse. Now you can call a, a nurse case manager or a community health worker to see what's to do next. And then a community health worker can monitor all the patients to say, hey, these people are doing okay. Oh, hey, I'm seeing a little bit more trending here. Let's, let me check in on them. So instead of calling everybody, now you can check in on ones that are have the emergent uh, cases because it's the ones that now you can automatically triage. So you can actually use machine learning here to triage automatically as well. So this is just an example where we did this for TB, but all of that is being applied for coronavirus and COVID right now. So this is not as relevant to coronavirus, but just wanted to talk about a couple examples on non-invasive blood screening. So we talked about microphones, everything you do with microphones, and there's a lot more you can do with microphones. I just talked about two examples, but what can you do with the camera? You know, the cameras are getting better and better. They can start to do, you can start to do amazing photography with these cameras and you can capture amazing pictures and the technology in the camera is getting so much better but what can you do it from a health standpoint? So we've been looking at how do we use the, uh, the camera and the flash that are also getting better for, for non-invasive blood screening. So one of the first areas we looked at was newborn jaundice. So newborn jaundice is basically, you know, when a baby is born, one of the things that you monitor is the amount of bilirubin that's in the blood. Um, this is pretty important. Um, bilirubins typically may increase at when a baby is born right after birth where their body starting to still adapt where you know blood cells you know you have blood cells that are developed and blood cells red blood cells that die that get garbage collected so to speak and and that that garbage collection process um, is starting to be developed in the body for for, for a newborn and so sometimes they don't develop fast enough and so you have the these these dead blood cells that are still starting to back up in in the body and what happens is the baby turns yellow that's one of the symptomatic signs, but this can actually have debilitating impact. Uh, uh, it can have a neurological impact. Um, and, and, and this is a case for newborn mortality, unfortunately, in, in many parts of the world, in developing countries in particular. In developed countries, um, this is tested for. The moment the baby is born, it's monitored at the moment of birth, before the baby is discharged from the hospital. Um, in, in many parts of the world where you don't have birth in a hospital, where you might have a midwife, uh, this might not even be tested for. So, so we are looking at how do we develop a technology that uses the phone where you can take a picture of a baby to see how much bilirubin is in the blood. Because it physically manifests itself in the skin, you can optically analyze the uh, amount of bilirubin because you can see the yellowness. The problem is, is that when you ask a parent, is your baby yellow or not? It's really hard to do that. For darker pigmented babies, they don't look, that, they don't look yellow or they don't look yellower. Or even if you had a baby that looks yellow, it's hard to know. It's like, do they look more yellow than yesterday? It's just so hard to do visual assessment. So what we wanted to do was create a tool that could do that automatically. Right now, the way that bilirubin is assessed is that you do a blood draw. So you, it's called total serum bilirubin. You take a little bit of blood, you analyze it. They make these non-invasive devices too. Um, this is a device that you put on the forehead of a baby and it uses an optical technique. It shines 
couple of different frequencies of light and looks at the absorption and reflection of certain frequencies to see how much bilirubis is at the subcutaneous level of the skin. So basically the capillaries and the vessels that are right below the skin, it just looks at the color uh, that's being absorbed and reflected to infer bilirubin. These devices are fairly expensive. These are about five, maybe five plus thousand dollars and they're not very ubiquitous at all. It's a very specialized device that's not uh, deployed massively. And because we knew that there was a device that could be done or used um, in a non-invasive way, we basically said, could we just do this on a phone? It's got a flash and it got a camera. Could we use machine learning with those sensors to do this? And the reason why bilirubin is an interesting one to look at is that bilirubin starts to peak after babies have typically been discharged from a hospital or after a midwife has actually delivered the, the baby. So typically you're outside the care of a professional when bilirubins are at the highest peak where you need to monitor them. So in the United States, after a baby is discharged after a day or two from the clinic or the hospital, um, then a parent has to monitor and say, hey, you know, is your are the kids' bilirubin going up? I don't know. We don't have a blood. How do I know? I have to look at them. And so a tool that you could do at home, especially for developing countries where you don't have a blood draw, you can have a, a, case, a nurse case manager or a community health worker start to do this assessment. And so the way this works is that it turns out bilirubin absorbs this blue light. So if you look at the wavelength, the absorption uh, probability of bilirubin, you've got this peak here, which is basically where if you have high amounts of bilirubin, you have this like 460, 470 nanometer light source that actually gets absorbed. And so, uh, and so here what we said was, hey, you know, a modern phone has a, um, a white flash, a pretty broadband flash. So if, you can, if we know the properties of the flash, and if we put, uh, if we took a picture of the baby with the flash, we could look at how much ambient light we had before we took a picture. We know that we can have the phone close enough so that you blanch the skin with the flash, or you kind of wash the skin out, and we can look at how much light is absorbed and reflected compared to a healthy baby with low bilirubin, you can start to see how much blue light's absorbed. Uh, this is very similar to that non-invasive device, but here we're doing it in a non-contact way. In this example on the far top left, we have a calibration card. So uh, the idea here is to calibrate the camera because every camera has a different uh, property in terms of its white balance and it might have uh, different correction factors that are built into the hardware, but it's just to calibrate the camera uh, as a reference, maybe ambient light to calibrate. So, uh, but most of the work is done by the phone here. And what we did was we basically created a, 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 an algorithm that essentially uh, identified where this peak happened. And so our algorithm, we did a clinical, uh, the trial, we've actually done more babies than this, but in our initial trial of about 500 plus babies, where we took a blood draw of a newborn and used the phone app to collect the, um, uh, the data, the, compared to the blood draw, Billy Cam had a 0.91 correlation to the actual blood draw. Uh, the, the TCB device is 0.92. So this the tool is almost as good as an, uh, a regulated, a clinical, non-invasive device. And as I said earlier, you don't have to be perfect. Even if you could provide a warning signal saying that, hey, we're in the uh, downward trajectory or we're seeing a high amounts of bilirubin or we're not seeing a, a reduction in bilirubin, that's already an important indicator that doesn't even happen right now. So this is an example of how to use a camera and flash to potentially get at some of that. Um, I won't go into detail here, but one of the areas after we had published this paper, a number of folks had reached out to us and said, hey, you know, there's this thing about bilirubin in adults. You don't see the yellowing happening in adults because, you know, um, the bilirubins are very minute. They change very little. And so you don't manifest it as a color change. But what happens is in pancreatic cancer, bilirubin does increase. Um, and pancreatic cancer um, has a five-year survival rate of only like about 6%. And that's because 
people don't know that they have it until they're symptomatic. And by the time you're symptomatic, it's often too late. You're in advanced stages. So if you could screen somebody much earlier, the prognosis could actually be very different. You could actually do things like a Whipple procedure or, or medical procedures that can maybe help somebody sooner, but you don't know until you're symptomatic. But one of the things that we were looking at is that in the eyes, in an adult with pancreatic cancer, the white parts of your eye, the sclera, actually get just a little bit yellow. And so we created a, 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 a protocol where you could do a selfie type picture in a study where we wanted to see, could we identify bilirubin, not in kids, but in adults, and see if jaundice is increasing. And we were actually able to get some fairly accurate results in terms of seeing a trend where your bilirubins are okay and they're starting to go up. And if you are at risk for pancreatic cancer, you potentially could use this as a home screening tool to see uh, what might be happening. So this could be a selfie you can take, or you just take a picture um, maybe once a month or once. And this is still very early work, but these are things that we've been looking at where right now we do it with a controlled box just to, so we can control light. Um, but this is an area we can start to get a, a, a potential diagnostic or screen that know how, other, how else would you have done it without being symptomatic or doing a blood draw at home. So these are some other areas that, that, that the community has been looking at. Another uh, technology that we've been, develop we've been developing is hemoglobin. So hemoglobin in the blood. So this is relevant for pretty much anybody for, for people with sickle cell anemia, uh, people that are anemic, uh, uh, pregnant women, uh, just anybody where you want to monitor your hemoglobin levels. Um, right now it's uh, done with a blood draw, but similarly to bilirubin, there's a spectral property that can be leveraged where you can actually start to do um, blood assessment. And so the way this works is you take your finger, put it over the camera and flash, so the flash turns on, and then you put your finger over that. There's a lot of apps actually you can download now that gives you your heart rate, which it looks at the cardiac volume changes. So basically the change, but what this does, it actually looks at the different frequencies of light in the RGB channel on the camera to figure out hemoglobin levels, not just your heart rate. It can capture your heart rate, obviously. And, and we know that you actually have a finger there when we see the heartbeat, but then it gives you in grams per deciliter what your hemoglobin levels are through an optical assessment. So similarly to the bilirubin device, there's actually a device called the Pronto device from Mossimo, which is a clip-on device that can do it non-invasively. So we knew that the hypothesis had some legs there because there is a non-invasive customized optical technique you can use to do this, which uh, there are devices out there that can do it. And the way this works is that, you know, hemoglobin, which is basically uh, so in the blood, you have basically hemoglobin and plasma or water that's in your blood. So really what you care about is the percentage of hemoglobin and plasma. So how much hemoglobin is in there? And it turns out the color is a good proxy for this too. The more red it is, the more hemoglobin you have than plasma. And so if you look at on, on the, wave, the absorption wavelength, just like bilirubin for hemoglobin, uh, you know, plasma is about 500 nanometers or water. And then you've got this absorption rate is very high. And then you have this hemoglobin, is, which is a little bit lower and it starts to dip a little bit faster than plasma, if you start to identify two different wavelengths on that curve, you can start to do the ratio between the plasma and the hemoglobin. So we care about uh, how much hemoglobin is in the blood as a ratio of plasma. So you can essentially look at the colorness if you wanted to, it's called hemochrome analysis. And so you shine light at it, you look at how much light is reflected and absorbed, just like in the bilirubin technique. In this case, we put the finger up against the camera because it's a lot harder to see these subtle changes. So you have to really push it up against it. So, but, but you can, if you know the light source in, weight, in the wavelength and you know how much is absorbed with and without a finger, then you can start to do that. But the challenge here is that, how do you know that you're taking the skin tone versus the blood into account? When you put your finger over the camera, 
and you record a video, you will slowly see your heartbeat. You will actually see the throbbing. It's just the cardiac volume when your heart beats. As that volume of blood gets to your fingertip, you see the volume change and increase and decrease uh, as the blood is flowing through, and that's basically your heartbeat. So what we do is because we can see the heartbeat through the finger, we know when there is a change because of the blood, because the blood was flowing versus the skin color, which is not going to change um, that rapidly. So we can do the differential from the blood contributed color change versus just the natural color change of the finger. So that's what we do. So we look at the resting, the heartbeat, and look at resting again. So we can do the analysis before, during, and after the heart is beating uh, in that, in that waveform. And then we can cancel out the tissue from the blood there. So again, we did a clinical evaluation. The Pronto device is a clinical device that's non-invasive. It's a little bit harder to do, so the correlation is a little bit lower than Billy Camps, so it's 0.81, but still really relevant and helpful as a screening tool. If you're anemic, um, if you have blood disorders, or if you need to do uh, a out-of-the-clinic uh, assessment or in, for a community health worker to do a quick assessment there. So one of the things we did here was the, the Ministry of Health in Peru reached out to us where they had a pretty big pandemic where they had a number of their kids in Peru that were anemic. And a lot of this was attributed to malnutrition, access to nutrition. And so they needed to do a massive deployment of how to screen for who would need to get a blood transfusion or who needs to get care. But if you think about the blood draws you'd have to do and just how you would get those into the, some of the jungles of Peru would be very difficult. To basically do screening using a phone as a tool to know that a community health worker can quickly screen hundreds of patients where typically it could take much longer than that. If you had a traditional blood draw, take it to the lab, you had to get the lab result back. This is a way to do a triage and then call it down to the smaller number of individuals that would actually have to get the blood draw. And in fact, you could deploy the app to all the community health workers and do a, a countrywide assessment very rapidly. And that's always the goal of this project here. So some of the things that I'm gonna leave you with are just some things that we're working on, um, just that's relevant, but this early. Um, you know, obviously fever is a big one for, for coronavirus. Um, and a lot of people say, why not just get a thermometer? But when you need to get triage, you may not have a thermometer handy. So one thing that turns out on a phone is when you unpack a phone, a phone actually has a lot of temperature sensors in it. It's got a set of thermistors for the, uh, the CPU, for the actual phone itself, for the touchscreen. It's got thermistors for the battery overcharge protection. So there's a lot of temperature sensors in it. In fact, if you look at some of the temperature sensors in a phone, they're the same temperature sensors you might find in a thermometer, like a forehead thermometer. Obviously, they're designed for different uses. But one of the things that we've, looked, we've been looking at is that the thermal mass of the body, if you, if you knew what's operating on the phone, so if you basically only had one app running or if you controlled what's running on the phone so you can get the temperature at a stable state, and if you put the face of the phone like on your forehead, you can actually change the thermal mass of the phone where the heat from the body can actually skew the temperature sensors because you're at a temperature that is around, if not a little bit lower, but just order of magnitude wise, that you can change the thermal mass of the phone and see all those thermistors pick up that differential. So if you have a fever of 101, 105, or 106 versus if you had a mild grade fever or no fever, you could see those changes. So you don't actually need to get the exact, oh, I'm at 101 or 102. Even a clinical thermometer is not even that great. I mean, even though you might get 0.1 degree Fahrenheit accuracy, in, uh, so 101 in Fahrenheit, 101.5 in Fahrenheit, it doesn't matter. Are you above a particular number is what matters. And so if you look at over time, the battery temperature has this exponential curve. If you knew the model of what the battery temperature curve was with different processes running in the background, and then you were to quickly change the thermal mass by 
introducing the body, in this case, the forehead, you can actually see the change off of that baseline. And if that baseline change is much higher than the, just the natural temperature fluctuation, then you know that you're in a particular grade of fever because it's just, you know, this differential wouldn't cause that change. So this is something we're working on now where Joe's doing some studies and clinical studies where very rapidly in the field, if you don't happen to have it, this is very important for gig workers, workers that are out in the field. We might not have a thermometer. We just want to be able to self-monitor. Do I have a fever or not? I feel feverish. Quick way of seeing, oh, are you above a threshold or not? So this could be a way that you can pretty much deploy these on billions of phones if we can get the model to work uh, well. So we're in the midst of doing this work. And this is something, uh, again, we're using a statistical model to model the, um, the curve of the, the actual battery temperature, but also looking at how does that differ when you have somebody with and without a fever. The other area we're looking at is a number of deep learning techniques on um, interpreting rapid diagnostic tests. So this is not directly doing a screen, but this is where you might have a lateral flow assay where you might have a malaria test or some of these COVID uh, rapid diagnostic tests that are being developed where you might take a sputum or you might take a nasal swab, put the specimen on this little strip and the strip changes color, kind of like a pregnancy test. It'll change color um, and then you have to assess it. The problem is, is these lines are faint. Sometimes you can't really interpret them. So some, we've been building these open source tools that you can take a picture of a malaria strip or even a coronavirus strip, and it basically interprets it for you. So you have an objective measure so that, you know, is that line too faint? Is it dark enough? We try to create an objective measure to see, okay, is this diagnostic or not? And because there's a lot of human error in interpretation, it's surprising. It's like, oh, it's just a color change. It's a line or not. But it turns out it's actually very difficult because the gray area is the important area because if it's very obvious that you're infected or not, but in the middle area, am I or am I not, that's where you have to be very objective. So, so we have um, a number of mobile health NGOs that are using some of our, our tools now to basically deploy in their region malaria or even now there's starting to be coronavirus scripts that are being developed to be able to do very rapid diagnostic tests where you go into the community, do a diagnostic test, and you quickly take a picture of these uh, tests to get them into the database, but also um, overread them very rapidly as well. There's an, uh, I'll leave you with this uh, project that's been going on for a while where it's a, this is another sensor. This is this cam this, instead of the camera or the microphone, this is the accelerometer and gyro. And you might think, what can you do with an accelerometer and gyro? Uh, in this case, we're trying to do bone density. So osteoporosis is basically a reduction in density over time. You know, a healthy bone is dense. If you think about a piece of wood, um, there's, you know, it's a fairly dense piece of wood, but osteoporotic bones, if you think about a piece of wood that has hollowed out or you have these holes in them, um, then the bones get brittle. And so one of the things that we had a hypothesis on was we found this paper in the 70s where there was a very clever clinician that basically de uh, de uh, designed a, a tuning fork where you hold a, a tuning fork that you hold it in your hand and you tap your elbow. And if the tuning fork makes a sound, that means that there was some hollowing happening in your bones. Because if you think about a structure, if you had a solid structure versus a structure that had some hollowing effect to it, the resonance that would get to the tuning fork would change. So the idea was that if I tap my elbow and I create this impulse response, if this thing made a sound, that means there's something happening with my bones. And so we're like, oh, interesting. We could actually probably do this with a phone. If you think about a modern phone, the accelerometer and gyro can be sampled at over a thousand hertz, a kilohertz. And now you can start to get these high frequencies that you can capture these small vibrations at a, at a broad band to basically say, could we replicate the, tu uh, the, the tuning fork experiment? And so the way that this works is you take the phone, you squeeze it in your hand, or you can actually put it up against 
maybe the, uh, the tibia on your, on your leg, um, and then you can use a, um, a, a, a little impulse where you maybe put an impulse on the tibia. So you basically create a little resonance. You can either tap your elbow or use a little um, uh, a medical hammer uh, to basically create a, a impulse. And then you look at what gets to the phone because you've got the natural shaking that might happen, but then you get these small resonances that occur. So if you look at the spectrogram on a healthy bone and an osteoporotic bone, a healthy bone, you get the sub 400 hertz resonances. You've got this solid structure. You've got these resonances that occur that are still ringing. Um, but when you have an osteoporotic bone, those low frequencies go away because now you've got the higher frequencies going through because you've got this hollowed effect. And so you've got these higher frequencies going through and lower frequencies going away. So algorithmically, you can either use a, a very simple threshold here or you can just use a, any conventional um, CNN to basically do image recognition on just the spectrogram if you wanted to, to identify that, hey, there's high frequency components here, this one doesn't. And then again, just like a lot of these previous techniques, you don't have to get an actual number. You can just see, because osteoporosis doesn't instantly happen. It happens over the course of time, um, many months, years. So if you had a sample once a month, then you can actually see when something's happening. But you don't have to worry about conventional techniques that, are, that require x-rays. So a lot of this is done using x-rays and you, you know, you're not going to get an x-ray every week or every month. Um, and so here you can use a non-invasive way of potentially measuring bone density. So this is just a quick just overview of, you know, it's not just a microphone and speaker or the, uh, the camera and the flash. You can also use accelerometer and gyro in unique ways. And there's others that use accelerometer and gyros for other things as well, like for monitoring heartbeats. And there's other things you can do with it as well. But this is just one example of bone density. So one thing I want to leave you with is that, you know, what does this uh, space open up with? You know, one of the things that's really interesting now is the regulatory space. You know, regulating a medical device is, you know, fairly straightforward. You have this device, you control how it's designed and developed, you do a clinical study, you validate it, and then you have this regular, how do you regulate an app? That's very different because it's, there's no device. The device is a ubiquitous thing like a phone. So regulating an app, uh, a software as a medical device is an area that's emerging in the United States and even worldwide. And how do you regulate an AI algorithm? And so I've been in the midst of doing a lot of that work. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting one where if you think about some of the con if you look at, uh, look at explainable AI explainability, if you look at the, uh, some of the, like those techniques are gonna be very important because when from a regulatory standpoint, you gotta have to have a sense of what, how does the thing work that you're trying to develop? You gotta have some physiological basis here, but I think the world is gonna be heading in a direction where you may not need that, but I think that is really needed for the safety and trust of these things. The other area is uh, around safety and trust is that the reaction you often get for apps is that, oh, apps are cheap. They're designed to be free or $1 and cheap. And so there's this perception that those are inaccurate. And that, that's a really tough one because, you know, apps are not supposed to be high quality, but in fact, apps can be pretty high quality because you get more continuous data. The apps can be a, a, a updated more frequently. And so that, there's this perception issue. The other one is around trust in general. You know, a lot of the technology that we've developed, you know, allows you to do monitoring at home. But what happens if the data isn't secure or if the data doesn't reside in, in places where the user doesn't have control? So all the work that we've done, the user has complete control over it. They, the data is local, it's on their device, they can delete it. They decide on when to send it to a physician or a clinician. It's all on device and, and, and being done locally there. And so, um, so you're consenting to it. But if you think about some of these things, um, the passive nature of some of these things, you got to be really consider what you can do with some of that. Like for one, ex for example, is in the cough work, we're looking at technology to identify when somebody might have, you know, pulmonary issues, but somebody could actually take that same technology and potentially identify how oh, from that cough, 
you had coronavirus or didn't have coronavirus. I mean, you can't quite do that yet. That technology doesn't exist. But just think about the things that could be done with the technology. So we have to think very creatively and carefully about the unintended consequences of some of these things. It's making it easier for developing healthcare for all of our, for everybody in the world. But at the same time, there's some things that it makes easier for people to identify that may not be um, as intended as we thought we wanted. The patient provider relationship completely changes. Now you're empowering an individual with tools or community health workers with tools that, uh, tip, uh, that typically the clinicians had access to those tools. So that, that, reap, that, that, that conversation between the, the clinician, uh, the provider, and the patient changes a little bit. Now the data, now the individual has more of it and more access to it. And so that, that relationship changes. The other one that we're starting to see more and more of that we're, you know, we're inking as much as we can out of these sensors. And it's actually helping inform new medical devices. Instead of thinking of it from a traditional way of developing a heart rate monitor, a blood pressure monitor, now you have these other ways of developing maybe even lower cost devices. Now, if you've made innovations and breakthroughs with these phone-based solutions, it can actually drive innovation in medical devices that are even lower cost that could be used in the clinical setting. And finally, I just want to leave, uh, in, a lot of this talk was around diagnostics and screening and tools for collecting data, but I just want to point out that that's just a small sliver of what we can do and what we need to do. Many of the problems that are pervasive worldwide are social determinants of health. And what I mean by social determinants is where you live, access to water, uh, safe water, um, nutrition. There's a lot of other things that we can do that can have a major impact on healthcare. In the United States, the zip code typically is actually one of the bigger predictors of mortality or uh, health and wellness, just your zip code where you live. So the environment the, the, around you, uh, the support structures you have, the infrastructure has a big impact on your healthcare as well. So just diagnostics and screening isn't gonna solve the problem. I just wanna call out that social determinants are just as important, if not even more important. Um, and in fact, mobile could have a, play, a role there as well. So this is, my talk has been focused on screening, but mobile has a lot more impact that it can have on social determinants. So. So I'd like to end with just thanking all my current graduate students, uh, current students, past students, students that have all gone off to bigger and better things as professors, uh, thought leaders in industry. Um, so just wanna thank them. A lot of this work, all of this work was done by my students. I just had the honor of passing along this information. Credit goes to them, not me. I'm just, like I said, I'm just uh, a conduit of the work that they're doing. So with that, thank you for your attention. Hopefully this was helpful and inspirational to all of you, but what I would like to leave you with is that computer science can have an incredible impact on society. Healthcare is a place uh, with the current pandemic with coronavirus, there's unprecedented uh, things that are happening and computing is playing a critical across the board then it's only gonna increase. So I think there's an amazing opportunity for computing to really change the world and it is changing the world right now. So thank you everybody. Thanks for listening in on the Future Positive Podcast. Be sure to check back next week for a fresh new episode. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with fellow future friends, and remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback really does help. Speaking of AI, XPRIZE and Cognizant have partnered to create the Pandemic Response Challenge, a challenge focused on developing AI and data-driven systems to predict COVID-19 infection rates and prescribe intervention plans that minimize harm when reopening cities and restarting economies. You can learn more at xprize.org slash pandemic response. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. 
Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.